one, um, one thirteen and fourteen, which can be found on page eight hundred and thirty-three in the Red Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Please add a blessing to the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As uh, most of you know, we're just going to try a couple things out here uh, with technology. And I sent this email out uh, on yesterday. And some of you got that, and some of you have already shown me that you've already been able to work it. But here's what we're doing. I'm going to first put up a slide with our Wi-Fi password, and we're just going to give that out for right now. Um, we always can change that. And uh, so we're just going to put that out if you guys want to try this out. And then <clears throat> there's going to be a slide with instructions on what it is we're doing. What this is, is if you have a smartphone or if you have a tablet or something, it's a way to follow along the message in, in the Bible app and save all of your notes. And so you can take notes in this app and it saves, uh, it saves them all into this Bible app. And so over the years, you can look back and you can look at all the notes that you've taken. You can look at all the different messages and you could just save them all. Or if you're a little bit lower tech, your bulletin does the exact same thing. It's just a piece of paper. You could just save it. You could throw it in a file. You could take notes on it. You could uh, bring a little sheet of paper and take notes. Same exact thing. But we just wanted to try this out. I want to see how you guys like it. It's going to be a three-week just trial period. We're just going to try it out. If you like it, great. We can keep doing it. It's really simple. If you don't like it, let me know. We just won't do it anymore. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Can you put the password back up? Okay. So... As you guys are playing with your phones, let me give you a few ground rules with this. If we're going to do this, we've got we to be on the same page with each other. One, respect the people around you. We know when you're on Facebook, okay? <laughs> we're going to know. <laughs> so respect the people around you. Um, please turn the, the, the volume off on your phone. You could always uh, turn the volume off. So respect the people around you. Um, like I said, this is an experiment. Um, and number, uh, number two is I would ask that you only have these devices out if you're going to uh, do this with your iPad, your iPhone, or whatever, if you're going to follow along with the sermon. I'd ask that you would only have these devices out during the message time, uh, during worship time, and be distracting and, and things like that. So, are we good? Okay, and the second slide is how to do this if you want to do this. One, you just download the, the Bible app. Two, you go to live events. And three, you search for, you search Covina because it's by location. And then it should pop up Neighborhood Christian Fellowship. The message today is called Called the Kingdom. And, uh, and the, all the message notes should be on that app. So if you want to use that, most of you have uh, smartphones in your pocket. Um, at least the statistics say that, that they're growing and growing and growing or iPads or something like that or any tablet. It works pretty much on any internet-enabled device. So... Um, <clears throat> let me know how you like it. If you like it, great. We'll continue on. If not, that's okay too. So like Pastor Earl said, my wife, my whole family and I have been battling through this cold this week. And so I just thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, it's with the help of God and a little bit of um, Sudafed, I'm here this morning and I'm good to go. 
So we're on this series. This series is called Focus for the Future. And what we're doing now is we're focusing on our vision for the future, for what God is calling us to and what God is going to have us do as a body, as a church. Uh, we focused on our vision for a few weeks last week. We talked a little bit about the story of how we were born, how, we, how this church came to be, and the heritage that, of, uh, that this church has in reaching the community and reaching our neighborhood and, and even in reaching our world and how many different um, locations this church has gone out to around the world. We've talked a little bit about how our vision was formulated and, and what God is calling us to there. And now the question is, what is Jesus calling us to? Like if we really dig deep into scripture, what is Jesus calling us to? What does Jesus want from us? And so the first one today that we're going to dig into, because I think there's a, a number of different things that Jesus is calling us to, but flip with me, <clears throat> or if you're in your Bible app, just scroll with me, to Mark chapter 1, verses uh, 14 through 15. So at the coming of Jesus, when Jesus went to go meet his very first disciples, this is what he said to them. After John was put into prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So this is the good news, that the kingdom of God is near. I mean, if we ask what the good news is, like what is good news, usually the church answer is what? Say it. Jesus, right? That's the youth group answer. Jesus. Yes, Jesus is good news, but what is he coming to bring? He's coming to bring the kingdom of God. And, and so for some of us, this is kind of mysterious. We don't know exactly what this means. John the Baptist, as he went to go prepare the way for Jesus, would, would say, repent for the kingdom is near. And, and Jesus would tell these parables and he would say, the kingdom is like this. And he gave this entire sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the new ethics of the kingdom. And, and as 21st century people, we might not understand or get exactly what he's talking about, but I think the people here who listened to Jesus fully got it. They fully understood because they had a rich history behind them. They had a rich understanding of what the kingdom of God is like and what God was trying to do with the whole kingdom. So flip with me. We're going to just go on this little Bible journey to explore the kingdom. <clears throat> flip, flip with me to Genesis chapter 12. In the first calling of Abram, or Abraham, who's Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, God gave him um, this promise. And it was a promise that, there, the, that Abraham would expand and, and, and things like this. And the promise starts by saying this, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is the very beginning stages of what God's kingdom looks like. I will bless all people, and you will be a blessing. The whole, the whole notion of God's kingdom is that they would bless others. But not only that, that who does it say it's for in here? This new great nation. It says it's for all people, right? I mean, throughout history, throughout um, especially the last 2,000 years, we've seen God's kingdom for this group of people. We've seen God's kingdom for this group of people. And, and even before that, 
God's kingdom was just for the Israelites or the Jews. But that's never the way it intended to be. God said from right in the very beginning, my kingdom is for all people. So this is the very beginning. And we see as God's people begin to move, they begin to grow and God's people begin to get bigger. They go down, and, and they go down to Egypt and they get lost there for a little while. And they've got to build, uh, build these, uh, they're, they're put into forced labor, <coughs> excuse me, forced labor situations. They uh, become slaves and they end up, eventually get lost there. And so God wants to bring his people out. And during that process of bringing his people out, there's this guy named Balaam in the Old Testament, and he gives this oracle. And it's basically he's saying, this is what God is telling me. And this is all the way in Numbers chapter 23. And he's looking down on his peop- at God's people. He's on a hill looking at these, this exodus of people, all the Israelites. And he says this, From the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. So he's looking at the people of Israel and he's saying, these people are different. They consider themselves different. They're, they're, they're apart from everybody else. There's something different about these people. They're a different nation even. They're not like the empire. So all through God's word, all through the story of the Bible, we see this contrast between the kingdom of God and empire. Empire being this nation building, and, and, and you'll see, we're going to look at a couple of examples of it. And versus the people of God and God's kingdom and what God wants for his people. I mean, there's this contrast, and the people constantly want empire, but God constantly pulls them back to his kingdom. And so we're going to keep going here. First Samuel chapter 8, continuing in the story. 1 Samuel chapter 8, what happens is these people eventually get to their people. This great nation eventually gets to their nation, eventually gets to the land of Canaan. And they're there and they begin to build themselves up and they begin to have these different sets of judges that would judge over them. And essentially the way that the governing structure was set up is that God was king and that there was all these judges making rules, not rules, but rulings for the people and helping them to follow and live by God's law. And there was prophets, and, and there was this, just a different governing structure. Until one day, the people were tired of getting conquered, because the way that it worked, if you read the book of Judges, the way that it worked is a good king who loved God, everything would be fine for the people, because he would get rid of the Asherah poles, he'd get rid of all the false idols, and he would command his people to worship God and bring their sacrifices and things like that. And they would live in incredibly prosperous times. And then there would be times where they, they had this king that said, you know what, I'm just going to, we're going to just do whatever we want to do, and we're going to go to make money, we're going to exploit people, we are going to uh, make alliances with these other nations. And guess what? The militaries would come in, and they would crush Israel. And so Israel at this point was saying, we want to live however we want to live safely. That's what we want. We want to live safely however we want to live. And so in order to do that, you need your own king, right? Because if you have your own king, then you can have your own armies. And if you have your own armies, then everybody coming to try and like, take you apart, you could, you could handle them because you have your own army, right? Right. Okay. No one sounds as excited as me. Okay, good, you're all still listening. 
So 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. By the way, um, quick stopping point. I got really sick this week, and, um, and the day I was going to s- sit down and make all the slides, it just didn't happen, so I'm really sorry. They're not up on the screen. They normally will be on the screen, all the scripture verses, but uh, really sick this week. Anyways, 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. Remember just a few chapters ago, in the book of Numbers, this guy named Balaam was looking over this group of people, and he says, I see a people, but they're not like other nations. And now the people of Israel are standing up saying, give us a king just like all the other nations. Something's wrong. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what, they're, what the king who will reign over them will do. So Samuel did all that. So essentially God said, it's not you, Samuel, it's me. They're not rejecting you as king. They're not rejecting you as, as the judge or as the prophet. They're rejecting me as king because they want to live however they want to live, and be safe doing it. See, because God was a God who brought this discipline because he loved his people. My kids are not safe when they disobey. I will spank them I, because I love them. Not hard. No one call, like, CPS or anything like that. <laughs> I, I discipline my children because I love them, and I want them to do good things, and I want them to grow up into people who, who are going to um, be productive. And I want them to grow up to people who will obey authority. And I want them to grow up to pe- into people who obey their parents and people who will discipline their own kids so that they will, will grow and do the right thing. So God disciplined his people over, over time. And his people kind of got sick of that and said, we hate being disciplined, so give us our own king. So what happens is that the kingdom of God, God's people slowly begin to go towards the realm of empire. They go away from looking like this separate nation, this light on a hill, this group that's going to be different. And Isaiah even says, you're supposed to be a light to all nations. And then Jesus even mentions that, and he says, you are a light of the world. And, and, and so God's people begin to go away from that. Flip with me to 1 Kings chapter 9, 15. This is probably one of the most telling uh, pieces uh, of, I'm sorry, I'm in 1 Samuel. 1 Kings, verse 9, 15. This is one of the most telling verses on a king of Israel than any other verse I could think of about other kings in Israel. This is King Solomon. This is David's son. And, and he says this. This is the, the writer of 1 Kings. Here's the account of the forced labor 
King Solomon conspired to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, and then blah, 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 blah. The account of the forced labor king. So basically, God's people have now turned in to what Egypt used to look like. What Egypt did to God's people, now Solomon is doing this to his people. The forced labor king. I mean, what a long way that he's fallen, right? That the people of God were supposed to be this light, they were supposed to be a blessing to everybody, and now he's the forced labor king. And guess what they use forced labor to build? The temple, Solomon's temple, Solomon's palace. I mean, they begin to go to this love of empire, the love of glitz and glamour, the love of having the, the resource, the love of having the protection, the love of having all of the alliances, and with that came other gods, with that came false idols, with that came um, a horrendous way of living that would ultimately take God's people into exile because they loved empire over God's kingdom. So remember where we started. Behold, the kingdom of God is near. And these people would understand this kingdom because this is part of their history. This is part of who they are. They knew they had rejected God as king. And they knew that, that their ancestor Solomon had kind of descended them into this, this point of life to where they were just like the other nations. They were just like Egypt, the land where they escaped from. And even <clears throat> chapter 10, starting in verse 14, if we were to read that whole section, it talks about all the horses that Solomon bought from Egypt. I mean, that's real different, right? buying horses from Egypt. I mean, essentially, even the first verse, it says, the weight of gold that if Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. I think that uh, the writer threw that in there just to show how evil this empire was beginning to be. Not including the revenues from the merchants and the traders, essentially talks about the wealth. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 Becquerets of gold into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammer and gold with three minnows of gold on each shield and put them in the palace in the forest of Lebanon. I mean, this guy flaunted his wealth. He used the wisdom that God gave him to flaunt and to become rich and to flaunt this wealth. And so God's kingdom, which was supposed to be different, really became just like the rest of the world. We have no experience with that, right? We have no idea what that looks like, right? Sometimes the church falls into that same exact problem. But as we keep going into Scripture, as we keep hearing this story, <clears throat> we see this other thing. It's, it's a prophecy. All the way in, in the book of Daniel. So if you're with me, flip with me to Daniel chapter 2. So we see this prophecy what happens is God's people under Solomon and all of the kings, Rehoboam, and all the other kings that followed him, there was a few lights there. There was a few good kings, like Josiah, the child king, helped restore worship into Israel and things like that. But essentially, there were so many bad apples that the kingdom descended into more of this empire nonsense. And essentially, God disciplined his people. 
He took them out into exile. The northern kingdom, like we've talked about before, was, was taken by the Assyrians and actually lost forever. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken to Babylon. And there's this guy named Nebuchadnezzar who has this dream. And he has this dream of a statue. And in, in this dream, he has this statue that um, the, the head is made of gold, the chest and arms are made of silver, the belly and thighs, um, are, or the chest of arms is silver, the belly, belly and thighs are iron, um, the feet are, are some kind of iron and, and, and baked clay. So essentially, there's a statue. It's made of all these different things. And then this rock comes down and crashes through the statue. Nebuchadnezzar is so afraid by this that he wants to know what his dream meant. And so he asked the, all the wise men of Israel, and they couldn't do it. And so finally, um, Daniel comes to him and says, I can't interpret your dream, but my God is so powerful that he will tell me your dream and interpret it for me. And that's exactly what happened. God disclosed to, to Daniel what the dream was and had him interpret the dream. And this is a bit of prophecy. And this is Daniel chapter 2, verses uh, 44 through 45. This is Daniel speaking. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring to them an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron and bronze and clay and silver into pieces. Now the whole idea is this statue has <clears throat> represented all these different kingdoms. The head made out of gold represented Babylon. The, the next kingdom represented Persia. The next represented the Greeks. The next represented Rome. So all these big empires, all these big kingdoms that ruled the world with their military might and all their military power. And in the prophecy, that uh, this dream, what happens is that there's this massive rock, not made by hand, not cut from hand, essentially by God, that came out that represents the kingdom of God. And it broke all these other, it broke this whole statue. And so what Daniel's saying here is, Listen, the kingdom of God is on its way and it's coming. And so people began to look at this and go, okay, we know this kingdom is coming. And they, they were looking for a Messiah that would come and restore Israel's kingdom, right? They were looking for a military power. They were looking for somebody who would come and restore it to their former glory. They were looking for, for something that would fill their own selfish desires, Flip with me to uh, John chapter 19. After Jesus came proclaiming his kingdom, even, he was even called king of the Jews, right? He was even called this. Um, we know that they were looking for a Messiah. Excuse me. <laughs> we know they were looking for a Messiah. Israel began to slip slowly in the seductive nature of this empire and all of the amenities that come with it. They were looking for a Messiah to come as king, but not just any king. They were looking for someone that would build their empire again. So Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom is near. This is huge. I mean, in light of everything that we've seen, this is huge. The kingdom is near. The true kingdom is near. But only they understood it as a military power. Look what happens in the ultimate rejection. 
John chapter 19, starting at verse 13. This is at at Jesus' trial. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat, a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatheia. It was the day of preparation of the Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. And then they responded this, which is, I think, the most telling. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. See, the, the, the real idea behind all of, of, of Judaism here is that God is king over his people. And they allowed themselves to go into this seductive land of the empire that would protect them, that would give them money, that would give them the illusion of freedom. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered, and finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified. At the heart of all of this is an attitude. At the heart of all of this is an attitude. Jesus came calling us into the kingdom of God. That's what he came to bring. He came to bring the kingdom. And so when, when we, we need to step into that, what does that look like? I think it looks like it's an attitude. The attitude of empire in our own lives is, I want it my way. I want things to go the exact way that I want them to go. And I think Jesus says, you need to die to that. You need to let that go. And I think we, we say, I'm not going to lay down my own life. I want it my own way. I want everything to work the way I want it to go. Life is about me, for me. I am in charge. And Jesus simply says, if you want to be part of my kingdom, and this is what we're really going to dig into a lot next week as well, but if you really want to be part of my kingdom, then you need to just lay your life down. You need to deny yourself and follow me. Deny your cross, or carry, deny yourself and carry your cross and follow me. And I, I think that that's what Jesus was really trying to get at here. I mean, Jesus, even in, in the book of Matthew, says, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, seek first the kingdom, and all this rest will be added to you. When he's talking about worrying and all these different things, clothes and, and what you'll eat and all those things, he, at the very end of that, he says, seek first the kingdom, and all this other stuff you'll just get. That's what Jesus said. So what does it look like? to live in the kingdom. God's kingdom is dramatically different from the empires of this world. What does it look like? Jesus gave us a glimpse of what it looks like by one of the ways, just because of the way he lived his life. In forgiveness and redemption, when Peter said to Jesus, how many times shall I forgive? Jesus said, seven times 77. That's how many times you should forgive. Not that 449 is a... Is that the right number? So I don't know. Any math whizzes out there? Not that, but, but something that becomes habitual. That you live your life in forgiveness and in redemption. The verse even that, that Sam read for us today, Colossians 1, 13 through 14, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Not only do we have redemption, but we have the power to live a new life. 
in God's kingdom, sin does not have to have a stronghold on your life. When you say, yes, God, I want to be in your kingdom, sin does not need to have that stronghold. Literally, the, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul talks about the old man and the new man. It talks about, uh, Paul talks a little bit about um, becoming a new man, stepping into your new skin, stepping into your new personhood. And when you say yes to Jesus, or maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you've been following Jesus in a way to say, no, I still want it my way. And that's possible. I mean, I've done that a, a number of times. To, to say, yes, Jesus, I still want to follow you, but I'm going to do everything my own way. I mean, it's saying intellectually, Jesus, you seem like the right thing to do, but, but in all reality, I'm going to live a different way. Um, I mean, that's entirely possible. But maybe you're here and, and you're living in this tension because you've always tried to be the king of your own kingdom. You've always just tried to be the one who, who had all the power and to rule it all. Maybe you love the benefits of the empire, the money, the power. But you know what you really need is the life that brings about forgiveness and redemption and focus on God's kingdom. Excuse me. Maybe today you have a conception that life can look different. What I think this really is about is freedom. I think what Jesus' kingdom really is about is freedom. Freedom from the desire to sin. Freedom from the desire to, to treat other people um, in, a, in a negative way. And one of the things that, that gets me about God's kingdom, in Ma- Matthew 5 through 7, he gives his kingdom ethics, basically. is the ethics of the kingdom, what the new kingdom looks like. And one of the things that he teaches is what we call the golden rule. Treat others the way that you would like to be treated, right? But at the time, we, didn't rev- we don't really rev- realize how revolutionary this is because there's some um, teachings from, from India at the time that says treat others the way they should be treated. Now, in a caste system where there's hierarchy, some people should be treated like dirt, right? But in a system where you treat others the way that you want to be treated as well, then all people should be treated like royalty. So, I mean, we don't understand the significance of this sometimes because, like I said, we're not first century people. But I think Jesus came to show us this dramatic new way of life and his life and his kingdom. And that's the first thing that he calls us to. That's the first thing that John the Baptist, as he comes preparing the way, he says, prepare the way, I'm preparing the way for the kingdom of God. There was even a soldier and a tax collector, um, this is in the book of Luke somewhere, that, that said, uh, hey, if this is right and the Messiah is coming, how should we live? And he says, don't collect any more taxes than you ought to. If you have two tunics, give one away. For the preparing of the coming of kingdom of God, the response was, live generously. Don't, don't steal. <laughs> For the coming of the kingdom of God. I love it. This week, I challenge each one of us to ask the question, do I, am I living my life in my own personal empire? Am I trying to be the king of my own kingdom? Or am I really submitted to the kingdom of God and everything that Jesus wants for me? I would challenge us all to ask that question for ourselves this week. 
I want to end in, in just in a word of prayer, and I want to invite you to pray. And maybe there's some of you here today who, who just need to say, I need to submit my life to God's kingdom. I need to, to change some things. I need to allow God's kingdom to work into me. And, and um, I need to stop being the captain of my own ship. I need to stop um, ruling my own kingdom here. Maybe that's where you're at today, tonight, this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, as we see your kingdom laid out over time, God, we know that you are working towards something. We know that you are working towards us becoming a light, towards people who believe in you becoming the light of the world. God, you set your kingdom up to be a people that are dramatically different from the rest of this world. Lord, would you empower us to be dramatically different from the world? God, would you empower us to change culture in our families and in our workplaces? Because God, when we really start living into the kingdom, we realize that forgiveness, not revenge, is the answer. We realize that love works miracles and that hate only perpetuates cycles. God, would you change us into kingdom people? And God, would you help us to live lives that would be shining lights to other people in our world? Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.